0: If you have a Bible, you can open to Matthew's Gospel. We'll look at chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. Text is also there on the next page. This feels like it's not on. It's not. Those aren't on. Okay. Working on it. All right, I'll speak up for now. (laughs) Um, Yeah, okay. Oh, well, look at that. Something happened. Alright, so we're back in Matthew's Gospel. We've taken some time off from that, but here we are. So, catch, catch back up to where we are. Uh, we, uh, so, Jesus has entered Jerusalem for the final week of his earthly life and ministry, leading up to the crucifixion. He's foretold that the religious leaders of Israel would deliver him to the Romans for crucifixion. And yet, he has come to Jerusalem anyway. He has entered his house, the temple... And he has been busy there uh, reordering the life of his people around himself, teaching and healing and generally restoring people to worship and communion with God in their relationship with him. So the more good that he has done, uh, the angrier angrier his enemies have gotten. Uh, And so now their animosity is becoming increasingly palpable and tangible. They're trying everything They can think of to get rid of him. Their number one goal in life is to make Jesus go away so that they can do life on their own terms. But, as always, Jesus thwarts the purposes of his enemies. They were looking to sabotage Jesus, but it is they themselves who go away confounded. Uh, It's worth taking a careful look at what's happening here in these few verses, because it might not be exactly what you expected. What Jesus says is certainly a surprise to these people. Uh, And maybe it'll be a pleasant surprise to us. So let's pray for that, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, you've given us your word for a purpose, for your purpose, to glorify your Son in us. So we pray that you would fulfill your purposes through the work of your Spirit in us as we consider your word together now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us, then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to him, to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. This passage is not about paying taxes. Just thought I'd come right out and say it up front. This is not Jesus' theological treatment about how to relate to the state. There are a lot of good, honest Christians who might want to ask that question. Should faithful Christians pay taxes to an oppressive government. That might be an honest question, and you might even find a hint about that in what Jesus says here, but that's not what this encounter is really about. Uh, The religious leaders are here. They're not asking an honest question about how God wants his people to relate to worldly governments. They're not interested in an honest answer because they're asking a dishonest question. They are plotting... Scheming how to get Jesus in trouble. How can we get Jesus to hang himself with his own words? How can we get Jesus to dig his own grave? His enemies try this uh, three times in a row here in Matthew 22. First here, the Pharisees and the Herodians. I'll explain that in just a minute, who who they are. Uh, The Pharisees and the Herodians are conspiring together against Jesus. Then in the next passage, we'll talk about next week, The Sadducees give it a try, and then in the following passage, the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, team up, right, try to uh, trip him up together. So what's really happening here is not well-meaning seekers of truth coming to Jesus perplexed, needing his help, asking theological questions that they want answers to. Asking for his wisdom for life with God in this world. That's not what's happening. What's happening is his enemies are interacting with him only so much as is necessary in order to be rid of him forever. Did you know you could come to Jesus with theological questions? And just be trying to interact with him as, minimum, as, as much as necessary to, to be rid of him forever. <clears throat> so first, the Pharisees send their disciples. Uh, that's a tricky move. That's not honest. <laughs> it's they're not going head to head with Jesus themselves. They're sending the young ones to butter Jesus up a bit. Right. So it'll appear just like the regular curious students going to a well-respected master teacher with a genuine question. That's just a show. They're just pretending they're doing the best they can to be rid of him. And this is their strategy. Um, it's dishonest, right? In fact, uh, they're colluding with their enemies, the Herodians, on this. So, <clears throat> the Pharisees—we talk a lot about the Pharisees because they show up uh, most frequently as Jesus's opponents in the Gospels. You know, they were ultimately Jewish nationalists. They—they they wanted Roman occupation to end. They did not want to pay taxes to Caesar. To them, those taxes were a sign of their oppression. It was a constant reminder of their oppression when we were forced to pay taxes to Caesar. And on this point, they probably represented the broader Jewish population. Probably most of the people in Israel resented being under Roman occupation and didn't like having to pay taxes to Caesar for everything that that represented. So the Herodians, on the other hand, uh, they thought that Roman rule was good. Maybe they thought it was inevitable. Hey, just got to get along. Might as well. But... Probably they thought it was good. It provided opportunities for comfort in this world. Think of all the benefits we get from being submissive to the Roman Empire. Uh, It provided opportunities for advancement in the world. Think of where you could get if you were a bootlicker in Rome. And they promoted the payment of taxes to Caesar. Yes, we should pay those taxes. If anyone teaches that the taxes should not be paid, well, <clears throat> the, the Herodians would probably snitch on him to the Romans, and that teacher would find himself in serious danger of being found guilty of treason, which would mean death by crucifixion. And this is why the two groups team up in this attack on Jesus. It is to their mutual advantage to work together on this one. Their question to him is crafted to get him in trouble with somebody, right? So if Jesus says, yeah, pay taxes to Caesar, well, then they hope that the people will turn against him for it because they all hate government oppression. But if Jesus says, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, then the Herodians will get him busted and the government will take him out. Government will eliminate this, this threat. So either way, they think they'll be able to force his hand He'll have to reveal who it is he fears most. Is it the Romans or popular opinion? Either way, Jesus gets into trouble that takes him out of the picture. Good plan. <laughs> the Pharisees and the Herodians uh, generally were enemies. They were, but, but they were happy to unite against Jesus, whom they perceived to be a greater threat to their way of life. You know, one moment they're at each other's throats, the next moment, hey, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. It's a dishonest union that generates a dishonest question, and they go to Jesus in a dishonest way with all this deceptive flattery. So they say, teacher, we know that you're true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. See how they're trying to lure him out into making a statement that might get him into trouble. Tell us then, what you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it biblical to pay the taxes to this government that oppresses God's people? Does God want us to pay taxes to such a government? Uh, Jesus knew they're not interested in an actual answer to that question, and he calls them on it. He calls them hypocrites, pretenders. They're acting respectful and curious and interested in the truth, but in reality, they're the opposite, Actually, the words uh, that they use to flatter Jesus are terribly ironic. They say, we know you do not care about anyone's opinion. Well, they themselves are too afraid of public opinion to openly move against Jesus. They say, we know that you're not swayed by appearances, which is literally, um, you do not see the face of men. We know that you do not see the face of men. They are putting on a false face for Jesus, and they say they know Jesus looks past false faces, false appearances to the heart, right? We know you're so great that flattery would never work on you. It's almost like they're taunting him by saying, we know you can't be tricked by any deception, while they're trying to trick him by their deception, (laughs) right? With those very words, not a good idea talking to Jesus this way. Uh, not a strong position to attack Jesus from. In fact, there is no position of strength in opposition to Jesus. The language they use here is even more ironic. Um, It's specific language that describes God himself. Remember our Old Testament reading that Sarah read, uh, Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. God is not partial. God is not a respecter of persons. God is not swayed by appearances. God cannot be manipulated. First Samuel 16, Yahweh sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance on the face, but Yahweh looks on the heart. So the enemies of Jesus, <clears throat> looking to trip Jesus up, and tear him down, they offer up these false, flattering uh, praises as though they thought Jesus were really godly, pretending that, right? When the reality is, Jesus actually is God himself. And this description applies to him in truth, more deeply than anyone can comprehend. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, or why tempt me, hypocrites? Right, so he looks past the face, he looks past the appearance of their flattery to the reality of their heart, and he sees that there is a disconnect between the appearance and the reality, between the face and the heart. That disconnect he calls hypocrisy. They're deceivers, they're pretenders, they're actors, they want to be known as good when the core of who they are is malice. They want to appear pious and religious and godly and interested in religious conversations, but their hearts are mortally opposed to the one true God, and they're disguising their enmity, disguising their enmity with God as religious curiosity, disguising their enmity with God as religious interest. They pretend to come to Jesus with an honest question, an honest theological question about the intersection between theology and politics. You know? But the whole thing is dishonest. It's born of their hatred for Jesus. They're testing him and they're tempting him, which is language that is um, used specifically to describe what the devil himself did to Jesus. And this is what's really going on. This is what Jesus really addresses with his answer to their question. The question about taxes is just the arena for the conflict, right? Uh, The opportunity here that Jesus sees is an opportunity to address their enmity with God. And that's what this conversation about taxes is. It's an opportunity for Jesus to address their enmity with God. Show me the coin for the tax, he says. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said Caesars. So here's something so basic that it's easy to overlook. Jesus asked for a denarius because presumably he didn't have one. But his enemies did. Uh, Many Pharisees would have said at the time that the denarius was an idolatrous coin. Because on one side of it, there's this picture of Tiberius. With the inscription, Tiberius, Caesar, which is a way of saying he's the emperor, he's the Lord, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side is a picture of the Roman goddess of peace, Pax, with the inscription, high priest. So Caesar was claiming to be the Lord, the son of God, and the high priest of the deity who brings peace to the world. This is language that Christians obviously recognize as applying to Jesus, the true Messiah, even the one true God himself in the flesh. So Caesar's claim is in direct opposition with God's claim and and the the claim of the Messiah. This is the height of idolatry, what's being claimed on that coin, front and back. All of this idolatry is summed up perfectly on the denarius, which is why Actually, most commentators point out that the pious Jews often objected to even carrying the coin, didn't want it in our pockets or our coin purse or whatever it was, Um, even using the coin. They didn't want to do it because it represented that kind of idolatry. So, uh, but but here you can see mine, Jesus. You can see my coin. right. So R.T. France says that pious Jews objected to the idolatrous coin. If they were using the emperor's idolatrous coinage, they could hardly object to paying the tax. That's probably the mindset that's being exposed here by the fact that they have one of these coins, whose likeness and inscription is this. They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So the coin came from Caesar as the leader of the Roman emperor worship cult. The coin represents Roman rule. The coin represents Pax Romana, right? Peace. Peace. fear and death. The, The coin represents the way of worldly power that addresses threats with crucifixion. The coin bears Caesar's image, represents all things Caesar. The coin belongs thoroughly to Caesar and his ways. If he's asked for it, give it back to him. And while you're at it, God has asked for you to give back to him what belongs to him. That's what this is about. This is not about paying taxes or navigating your relationship with the state as a faithful Christian. Maybe there's a hint, an assumption here that, yes, sure, paying taxes is, is fine, right? But, but clearly Jesus is being dismissive of that question as not the real question. The, the talk about taxes is just the build up to the real issue you, uh, the real issue at hand. Religious hypocrites use the appearance of piety to keep Jesus away. In truth, they're like the wicked tenants in the parable Jesus has just told uh, in the last chapter of Matthew's gospel. The wicked tenants who violently refuse to give back to God what belongs to him. They refuse to acknowledge that they belong to God. Even though these are the most upstanding religious people in the land. They refuse to acknowledge that they belong to God. They don't want to belong to God, not to the one true God, not really, despite appearances, despite the face they put on. Jesus looks past the face that they're showing him to the heart, and he calls them to embrace belonging to God. Embrace belonging to God and then to give back to God what really belongs to him. How has Jesus identified what belongs to Caesar? It's what bears his likeness and his image. Well, what bears the likeness of God? What bears the image of God? That's humanity. Humanity bears the image of God. In some sense, all humanity was created by God in his own image, created by God in his own likeness. That's the language you find in the first chapter of the Bible. right? So this means that the original intention for, that God had for humanity, all of us, the original state in which God created humanity. The original purpose for which God created humanity was to relate to him like a son relates to a father. It's a very special, unique relationship of sonship that God has established between himself and human beings. Saying that we belong to God is more than saying, well, God created us, so he owns us. It's more than that. God created all things. He owns everything but to say that we belong to God is referring to this special relationship that we have with God where we bear his image. We bear his likeness. We enjoy intimate fellowship with God like a son with his father. We, we represent his kingdom in the world, the kingdom of self-sacrificial love and true peace with God where God gives himself to us and we respond by giving ourselves back to him in his own spirit. It's this mutual belonging. And this is what the enemies of Jesus are not interested in doing. They view belonging to God as a threat to their autonomy, a threat to their way of life, and oppression similar to that of Roman rule. That's what it feels like. You tell me I belong to God, I view it as an oppression similar to Roman rule. If we belong to God, then we're his slaves, and he can just command us to do what we don't want to do, And that's a miserable existence that we obviously don't want. Is that how you conceive of belonging to God? Do you oppose Jesus because you cannot stand his claim on your life? Do you pay religious lip service to God? Participate in the trappings of religious life with God, but really in your heart reject his rule and resent the call to give back to him what belongs to him? Why would you think that belonging to God means such slavery when the scriptures are so abundantly clear that it means sonship? What if belonging to God were something wonderful and glorious, like when the bride in the Song of Songs rejoices and says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. What if belonging to God meant such security, And assurance of his love that nothing could ever shake the foundations of your relationship, not even your own sinful rebellion against him. What if belonging to God were the reason for everlasting hope to see eternity as a feast in God's presence? What if belonging to God meant courage to face anything in life, knowing that he ordains all things for our good as his beloved children? What if you believed the very first expression of faith in the Heidelberg Catechism? What is your only comfort in life and death? That I'm not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. What if belonging to God meant the glory of participating in his life of love? the privilege of giving yourself back to the God whose love sustains you, who fills you with his own spirit, the spirit of self-gift. Jesus invites you to join him as the beloved son when he says, give back to God the things that belong to God. Why would you oppose him? Take his question seriously to them. You know, Why are you testing me? Why would you try to get him out of the picture of your life? Why would you View his claim on you as a threat. His claim on you is life. His claim on you is divine life. All of this was too much for his enemies. When they heard it, they marveled. They were confounded. I think that's a good way of saying it. I don't think they were marveling like, they were amazed, this is so great, we appreciate this, uh, because they left him and went away. (laughs) They were confounded. Rather than joining Jesus as he has invited them to do, uh, they left him. Their enmity is exposed for the tragedy that it is. They they had sought to stump Jesus, but it's they who are confounded, and they walk away from the one who is life, as he's calling them to life. And here's the last bit of irony: his enemies went on uh, to pursue his death. They were not deterred in that plan. That's still their number one goal. The death of Jesus. Here is the son belonging to God, the perfect image of God, come from God to bring many sons to God, and they gave him back. They gave him back to God when they crucified him. Even in their refusal to give back to God what belongs to God, they can't help it. They're unwitting participants in the son's sacrificial love and salvation. This is God's plan. It was God's plan that thwarted the purpose of his enemies, even as his enemies thought they were ridding themselves of him. You belong to God because Jesus belongs to God. Because Jesus was willing to give back to God what belongs to God, namely his very life for your sake. In the giving of his life back to God, We find our life, and we find our mutual belonging. And we find our own sacrificial love in his sacrificial love. Whose likeness do you bear, and whose image are you created and renewed? You belong to God. You belong to God. Give back to God what is God's through joyful faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us all. To know your Son in such a way that it means everything to hear you say that we belong to you, that you are our God, and that we are your people. To hear the reality and be able to celebrate the reality that I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Fill us with your own spirit that hearing this good news, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.